0: Welcome to Doomed to Repeat It, the podcast about current events and the history that got us here. I'm Logan.
1: And I'm Nick.
0: Some time ago, the politics of the republic began to break down. The spirit of statesmanlike cooperation that had encouraged politicians to work together through honest political differences had slowly given ground to naked personal ambition.
1: Always seeking that next opportunity to leverage the next voting block for political gain, Politicians began representing their own vested interests over and above the needs of the state. In such a system, the Constitution was bound to be relegated to smaller and smaller importance, until it was eventually ignored outright. This happened in fits and starts.
0: One side would ignore one small piece of the norms and rules of governing, the other side would cry foul, but the constituents of the politicians doing this were clear. It was a justified compromise to a necessary end. In some ways, politicians had no choice but to leave their political opponents fuming in order to mollify their base.
1: But as the political pendulum swung back and forth, those fuming opponents eventually took power. And so in this way, outrage was exchanged for outrage time after time until the entire political system was left teetering on the brink of collapse. So today... We're going to start a mini-series of episodes wherein we look at what happens when civil discourse breaks down, and a country finds itself divided into two camps that see each other less and less as rivals and competitors, and more and more as enemies and threats. We'll use two episodes to examine how this happened in Rome in the time period before the fall of the Republic. Then in the following episode, we'll examine how the same thing happened here in the United States in the 1800s, right before the Civil War. And we'll see how these moments compare, of course, to the political discourse of today. So join us now for the first in a multi episode journey the breakdown in civil discourse on Doomed to Repeat It. All right, Logan. Well, um, we have no shortage of timeline to cover here today. Mm -hmm. So, what I would like to do is, and, you know, kind of the nice thing about it is it comes in bite sized chunks, so we can handle it that way. Um, well, so what I'd like to do is talk about sort of one event on the Roman timeline at a time, and then ask if we see anything today that sort of maps onto or mirrors that moment. Because, as I said in the intro, you know this this breakdown in discourse in Rome happened in fits and starts, and so I think we can take each fit and start individually and dive in. How does that sound to you?
0: Yeah, that sounds great to me.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you can argue about where to stick a pin on the timeline and say that this process started. But I think it's fair to say that a big shift occurred, um, and if at the very least the process was kicked into overdrive, with the, uh, the completion of the Third Punic War and the concurrent wars that were being fought in Greek territory in, in the east and uh, in Spain in the west. Um, and I think we touched on this a little bit in episode one where we talked about Rome exclusively, right? But basically this, the, the biggest changes in this were, um, were felt in a couple of different places in the economy of the empire. One was in the the case of the small land holding farmer who previously was able to continue to hold their land as they fought wars that were not that far from home. And so they could afford to maintain their farms, um, With wars further and further afield, they would return home, unable to bring their farm back up to productivity. This led to a lot of uh, small holding farm sales, which then accrued in the hands of a few wealthy owners. Um, That disparity in property rights was supercharged by the fact that as the Romans won all of these wars in Greece and Spain and in North Africa, They brought back a whole bunch of crap and that crap accrued to the wealthiest people as well because they were they were almost always the commanders in those wars. Right. Um, And so at the end of the day, the the change that was affected by the the further afield foreign wars undertaken by the Roman Republic um, was really one that affected the distribution of resources and it was triggered by an inflow of resources um, from outside of, you know, the spe- the standard sphere of Roman economic productivity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, we live in a very, we'll say, interconnected economy. Um, farming isn't as important. Uh, but there, we definitely do have a habit of putting soldiers on deployment for long periods of time. Absolutely. Um, and there are some ways in which wealth transfer happens from, you know, uh, resource centers that are not necessarily in the United States. And so I guess it's worth asking the question, are there some parallels here? What do you think?
0: Well, I certainly think that there are parallels, um, just in comparing, you know, income inequality and rising income inequality in both societies. Um, Whether or not, you know, American income inequality is due to uh, the accumulation of, you know, foreign treasure or sort of um, policy failures that allow billionaires to exist. (laughs) That's my slanted uh, take on it. whether or not those things are exactly the same, I think, is less interesting than than what the sort of massive inequality uh, between the rich and poor, what effects that has uh, on the kind of politics of the current moment. So, uh, for instance, you know, in our current political moment, um, and you can jump in here too, Nick, if you like. But uh, in our current political moment so for instance our our elections are basically battles of billionaires um you know, we go to the polls and cast our votes but um but the real kind of power behind the scenes comes in the form of incredibly huge donations and uh super PAC money, which is funded by billionaires both on the left and the right uh and really equally on the left and the right um And sometimes, you know, to the tune of, you know, for instance, dropping $80 million uh, in Michael Bloomberg's case in uh, on flipping the House of Representatives to the Democrats this last election, for instance. Um, And so that would be, you know, on the at least middle left. But uh, you also have the Koch brothers spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars to defeat things like uh, public transportation uh, in local elections. Nowhere near where they actually live. So um, these individuals and foundations have an outsized influence on politics, and um, just as uh, just as the the sort of senators uh, in Rome who found themselves with political power and amassing you know incredible wealth and increases in land um, would. Get more and more influence, more and more political clients, just because of their accumulation of wealth.
1: So I think that what that uh, what what I'm hearing in that description is a snapshot of what Rome looked like, or what the United States looks like after the factors that might dictate how wealth gets distributed have come into play. Like we're already we're seeing a post wealth disparity society is what you're describing, right?
0: Yeah, I think I think right now in the United States we have a similar situation to what we had in, you know, the 1930s for instance.
1: Right. All I'm saying going way back to the original point is I don't think we should gloss over how those disparities occurred in the economy cuz you're right superficially um plundering foreign resource centers may not feel like a big part of the American economy in the same way that it was. In the Roman economy, but at least I think it's worth posing the question: um, What is, you know, what's been the role of multinational corporations in the wealth disparities that have emerged in the United States? Sure, yeah. Is there are ways of looking at multinational corporations as the modern equivalent of using an army to expropriate, you know, mineral resources or or timber resources or what have you.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely a good point. I think you're right. We can't we can't gloss over it. Um, certainly, you know the the companies that these individuals hold power over uh, only really can accumulate that much wealth, you know, because they're multinational, because they offshore resources. Um, you know, I mean, the Coke. Gosh, you go back and look at the Cokes. The Coke Coke brothers' father was making money. Uh, building oil refineries for Hitler. So this does go back, this does go back quite a while. And I think you're right that our military adventures, um, either our own military adventures, or, you know, the sort of um, capitalist drive, um, you know, to, to accumulate, uh, to accumulate capital is, um, you know, to deploy it uh, is definitely part of the story.
1: Yeah. Well, and also uh, we've created an appetite for wealth at the top. Let's, let's, let me put that another way, an appetite for wealth in the middle. That means we all aspire to a lifestyle that's similar to those at the top. And that reality is not sustainable based solely on the United States' economic production alone. Like, right. If you look at the corporate economic productivity that's generating wealth in the country and then you sort of right size that and i'm I'm talking out of my ass right now i could be wrong like
0: i love it i don't know the, but if
1: you but if you right size that to you know the productivity of american land and american mineral and energy resources um i'm not convinced you could sustain the billionaire lifestyles that exist but much more upward mobility to get more people to that you know Right. that lifestyle like there's at some point there's a cap on resources and plundering foreign wealth is a sign that you've kind of gotten there
0: yeah that's true you know it's it's funny i mean i can't remember who said this but uh, america is kind of the land of uh of temporarily disgraced billionaires um (laughs) everyone is just you know a lucky break away from at least being a millionaire if not a billionaire and um it's interesting because there was definitely that kind of I don't know if we can say middle class but that kind of class striving within within Rome. Um you know this comes a few years after the Punic Wars but um the Caesars were a well-respected family because of their history but they were not um or sorry is it the Julians? Uh I I mean yes. Right. So st- But Julius Caesar's family was well respected because they had a lot of history. But the Caesars, the the Julians, they weren't um, politically or economically sort of in the stratosphere of Rome. But Julius Caesar was certainly a striver, you know. And so there was that kind of striving, um, at least in the upper middle class, you know, among people like Julius Caesar, who who saw foreign conquest as a way of of, um, amassing, you know, power and wealth. Um, so I do think it has a degrading effect on a society.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Cicero would tell everyone and their mother what, that he was a, a novus homo or a new man whose family hadn't previously been in the Senate.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Uh, because he was proud of that accomplishment and Gaius Marius, who we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, his family came from Alpinum. They weren't, his parents weren't even Roman citizens. Um, so you're right about that. Uh, But I also, like, I guess the frame that I'm trying to get through that I'm not sure if I've communicated correctly at this point is that it seems like there comes a point when a society's desire for consumption outpaces the economic productivity of the territory they occupy. And that, that sort of tension and tipping point at least at first blush to me seems like a common feature between um, the United States and Rome in the sense that we rely on multinational corporations to do the same job that they were relying on conquering generals to do um, in the way that I described. So that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So kind of like sort of like the, the colonialist, almost like the colonialist drive. I don't know if we can map that back onto Rome necessarily, but but the yeah, I think that the way you said that the the desire for consumption it requires um, the accumulation of of goods and resources from extra sort of national places, like you 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 necessarily have to have to extract wealth from somewhere else because because the economy in the United States can't, or whatever, Rome, can't uh, sustain the sort of greed of the citizenship. And, right. And, not, and that's, that, wouldn't be, we, that wouldn't be limited to the upper classes even.
1: Right. And I mean, I think Polybius wrote this, uh, wrote about this issue in Rome, and he said something to the effect of, at the same time, the Romans acquired a taste for wealth and a license for acquiring it. Meaning, you know, because previously Romans had been kind of, you know, proud of being an austere people and that sort of changed right around the same time that they started conquering everybody, which, you know, big coincidence, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, I think we've mapped that out pretty well. So let's start talking about some of these conquering generals and some of the little constitutional compromises that were made to make sure that they could keep conquering territory and see if there are any little constitutional compromises that we can find in our own day. Um, spoiler, I think the answer might be yes.
0: <laughs> My, uh,
1: so, um, let's talk about, uh, the first one I want to talk about is Scipio Aemilianus. And this is the general that was enlisted by Rome to win the third Punic war. Um, so that's sort of the big war that kicks this whole process off. And really briefly, the Scipio family history, uh, was one of winning Punic wars Um, you know, his, he was the son of Scipio Africanus, um, who was known for defeating Hannibal. Um, and I mean, really not even defeating Hannibal so much as attacking Carthage while Hannibal was away. So Hannibal had to leave Rome, but in any case, Scipio, um, owned Carthage in the second Punic war. And so the Third Punic War rolls around, um, and without getting into it, it was kind of a farce, um, like Rome was going to win the whole time. But still, there was some hand-wringing in Rome about making sure that a Scipio could defeat Carthage, because um, they didn't have confidence in other generals. And what this all shook out to was Scipio Aemilianus was the only one that was you know, the, the right age, and possibly alive, I'm not sure about that, um, to run this campaign. The problem was they needed a consul, right? That's that that was part of consular authority, and Scipio Aemilianus was not old enough to run for consul, you know. And so they, you know, they had a choice to make. They could either follow the constitutional uh, requirements for co- uh, you know the age of a consul, or they could go ahead and give it to Scipio Aemilianus because they really, you know, Carthago delenda est. Carthage must be defeated. <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, at the end uh, Carthage must be defeated so they they go they went ahead and they made Scipio Aemilianus a consul for the year 147 BCE um even though he was not of age to hold the office but it served them in good stead do we know how old he was Aemilianus was 38 years old in the year 147 BC so only two years shy of the necessary 40 um but enough to be a compromise, nevertheless. Right. And so that, you know, that was a case where um, the the needs of the nation came into conflict with the observing the constitution of the nation, and they chose the needs of the nation. Um, and unfortunately, that sent a message, and it just made it feel a little bit more okay. Which is good, because they ended up needing S- Scipio Aemilianus again. Right. And Aemilianus had done that. Now, granted, he did it when he was 38, but he still had served his consulship. That was, you know, that was sort of it. Um, but then, in uh, 134 BC, so fully 13 years after he had defeated Carthage, um, there were problems in Spain. Um, a tribe called the Numantines were giving Rome a pretty significant ulcer in Spain, which, for, for the record, seems to be kind of the par for the course for conquering powers who are trying to occupy Spain. But that's not, that's not yeah. worth getting into here. Um, but in any case, uh, the Numantines were, were, were resisting Roman occupation. There were a series of military encounters, and at the end of it all, they just couldn't find a winning general, so they decided to choose Scipio Aemilianus, a guy that they knew could win. And he could. Um, but in order to do it, they had to break the constitution again. Um, and so they did, they gave him his second command. He went out and, uh, well, he didn't exactly win the Numantine war, but that's a story for just a minute from now. Um, in any case, Logan, what do you see in today's timeline that sort of, um, you know, that looks the same or looks like towing the constitutional line for short term gain?
0: Right. So these, I think the common theme, um, the common theme, especially in the Roman timeline, where, you know, where the Constitution is just bent a little to allow exceptions, it's always in response to some crisis, um, whether it's, you know, taking down Carthage or um, a uh, an ulcer in Spain. Um, and so, you know, we think of we think of political military crisis here in the United States. And the thing that comes to mind, I think, right away has to be 911. Um, and in the wake of 911, we have both the the Patriot Act, uh, which both parties, um, both our, our right party and our left part party came together to um, to compromise, um, you know, large, large parts of uh, the Bill of Rights. Um, and, you um, I think we also have the um the AUMF, the authorization for use of military force against terrorists, which really really took the gloves off of an executive which already um, which already had been uh, pumped up with power over the military that the founders certainly didn't um, certainly didn't envision when they framed the constitution um, and kind of gave, gave the executive unlimited, um, unlimited authority to sort of call shots about where the military went and what it did.
1: Right. Well, speaking of um, uh, that, that was also true in Rome um, in 133 BC. So a year after um, Emilianus was sent to Spain, um, Tiberius Gracchus came along. And so Tiberius Gracchus was actually the brother-in-law of Scipio Aemilianus, but he was much younger. He was along with Scipio Aemilianus during the Numantine War in Spain. And as I mentioned, Scipio didn't exactly win that war. Um, in fact, uh, it ended with a kind of a humiliating defeat. Another case where the Roman army was, was asked to uh, pass under the yoke. So I'm uh, reminding you from last time, that's a shameful way of leaving the battlefield um, without your weapons or armor. Um, but they were allowed to leave alive because of a deal that was negotiated by Tiberius Gracchus. Um, and I should note that for this section, we owe a debt of gratitude to Mike Duncan's book, the storm before the storm for laying out this scenario in, in pretty close detail. Um, Thanks. Yep. Mike. Appreciate it. Fellow podcaster. Um, okay. So um, Tiberius Gracchus um, real quickly found himself in a place where he was the face of a, a, shameful, um, a shameful moment in, in Roman history. And that really uh, torpedoed his career in the Senate. Um, you know, he, His father had, had been a consul twice, and he was expected to possibly do the same thing, um, possibly more. Instead, he found himself without anywhere to go after suffering that humiliating defeat in really his first major public magistracy. Um, So his chances of advancing up the typical um, cursus honorum um, was pretty limited. Um, So he did something wild. And this is just one of those cases where somebody did something that was a little bit away from the norms of governing that ended up having pretty big reverberations down the line. And that is that he decided to run for Tribune, which was typically not something that was done by senators um, or members of the senatorial class. Um, And so it was a, a a pretty outrageous step, but he won. Um, and a big reason that he won was that while the Senate was pissed at him for, uh, you know, suffering a humiliating defeat on behalf of the Roman people, the actual Roman people were pretty pleased with him because he brought their sons and husbands and fathers home safely. Um, so they being the ones who vote for the tribunate, um, elected him in a landslide. Um, and what he did with that was in conjunction with his father-in-law, who was a senator, he introduced a bill called the Lex Sempronia Agraria, um, which is the law of public lands. Um, if you care to translate the Latin specifically, um, but basically what it did was it took public lands. It, um, it just, dis- it in decided to enforce previously existing laws on the books that would basically compel, wealthy squatters on public land to leave that land. But the thing is that the wealthy had kind of, you know, they'd improved the land, they'd taken over the land. Um, and so there was, there was a contentious relationship over whether this land should just be appropriated away from the wealthy that had invested in it or, um, or whether they, they had in fact been sort of criminals all along. And so, you know, whatever. Um, but the, bigger undercurrent that was running underneath all of this was was the uh, the political shift that it would create because it would take all the people who were currently you know sh- basically um, vassals living on the land and farming for their landlords, like tenant farmers, and it would give them a small plot of land of their own. Um, and the way that that worked in the Roman political system is that the person who is in charge of making those distributions, Ends up being sort of the political patron of the people who receive the land. So the effect that this particular law would have had, because um, because Gracchus's father-in-law, whose name was Clodius, um, was going to be one of the land commissioners, is to transfer a huge number of political clients off of the roles of you know wealthy landowners who occupied the Senate by and large, um, and onto the roles of this particular. The, the Claudian faction in the Senate. And this, you know, this political imbalance couldn't be accepted um, without a fight. Um, and maybe we should stop there um, and just talk about things that have created political imbalances in our system before we dive into what happened next.
0: Yeah. I, one one quick thing I'd like to mention is that it's important, I think, to understand the way that political clientage and clientage in general worked in rome um i I won't go way into it but basically you had hierarchies of loyalty that people owed to each other um so the the lowest person on the totem pole owed loyalty up a chain to um to a senator essentially and there was kind of a um an understanding that you know votes and things like that could be you know votes could be whipped up um by by flexing the 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 chain the, all the links in that chain to to do so to get something done politically um in the assembly um it and it's it, it's interesting i think it's kind of interesting that it it is not unlike the way the mob the italian mob works which is probably not like an accident i mean i don't know if we can draw that comparison or not but um it's kind of uh it's kind of a freaky parallel oh, so. right
1: and just to, to add to that briefly like in in rome right up until the period we're talking about with tiberius gracchus um you had to vote in a public forum like literally in the public right. forum out loud so your your political patron would know who you voted for and Another feature of the patronage relationship was that if you were unemployed, which a ton of people in the city of Rome actually were, you know what you would do is you would spend your morning going from your from patron's house to patron's house and basically asking them for money and they would give it to you. So if your mm-hmm. patron heard you cast a vote that they were not pleased with, like that threatened your livelihood directly.
0: Right. So anyway, I, I, th- it's, I just think it's a fascinating kind of political setup um, and just kind of worth taking that aside for. Um, for anyone who's kind of interested in the way that Rome sort of worked day to day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we can talk about the way that sort of these escalating breaks with norms and traditions, um, become sort of a tit for tat They're in relation to each other. You know, one side breaks a norm, the other side responds by breaking a norm, uh, or two. And then, uh, the, the side that first broke the norm breaks another norm in order to, in order to answer for the norm that was broken by the second side and back and forth um in kind of a kind of a arms race um and so you know Tiberius sort of faced the stubborn stubborn obstinance of um his fellow tribune uh is it Maximus no uh Marcus Octavius so um Tiberius you know faced this sort of stubborn obstinance of uh, Marcus Octavius, uh, in the assembly, you know, vetoing everything that he tried to do. And, um, and Tiberius, you know, had an answer for that. And so I think in our own political moment, uh, over the last, I guess, since when 2000, uh, 2008, uh, I don't think it's too far out of bounds to describe the GOP's position against Obama as stubborn obstinance. Um, and you'll have the Democrats uh, nuking the filibuster uh, rules so that they can appoint federal judges because otherwise it's impossible for them to, um, to appoint federal judges. Um, you also have Obama making frequent recess appointments of judges to the point where a, um, a case will go to the Supreme Court. And uh, the Supreme Court will say, actually, you know, uh, making recess appointments like this isn't exactly how we understand the letter of the law. Um, and then and then in um, retaliation, you have at the end of Obama's presidency, the attempt to appoint Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, which uh, not only doesn't happen, but doesn't even get a hearing. And so um, you know you have you have a i think a quick ex escalation from a kind of do nothing congress to um a real change in the way that that judges are appointed in the country, which has often been a matter of course throughout the the history of of the United States. This has not always been you know the political football that it is now, but one thing that i just
1: i wanted to circle back to specifically was um because we have some conversations going on right now that I ha- I don't know that we've hit on um, that really seem to relate pretty specifically to political clientage um, in our own form of, you know, Republican government, right? When you talk about, um, you know, voter ID laws um, and voter fraud um, and you talk about, you know, hmm. different ways of gaming the system um, to prevent, you know, communities of color from voting. I feel like that maybe even grows out of rightly or wrongly what's perceived on one side as, you know, a huge win in the realm of political clientage in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed and in 1968 when the Voting Rights Act was passed. Um, you know, because, you know, in some ways, and this is sort of parallel in some ways to the Lex but you can see that as a momentous moment in our history and an important forward step in making sure and ensuring the rights of all people. Right. Um, but there are definitely ways to look at it if you weren't on the right side of history as a cynical ploy to transfer a whole bunch of voters onto, into your base. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think it does. And I, I think, you know, in that we can include, you know, gerrymandering, um, which I actually learned the other day, uh, the United States is the only democracy in the world in which politicians are allowed to draw their own districts. I mean it's sort of like a no duh kind of thing. Um and so not only, you know, not only is it sort of obviously um, obviously ripe for cor- corruption letting politicians draw their own districts, but it's not I mean it, it's 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 a norm that that politicians have been breaking more and more i think in our current moment but it's a norm it's a democratic norm which the united states parts with uh you know uh, which is sort of mind numbing in a way um but i definitely think that that there is a parallel there between political clientage and uh in rome and and the way that people are either enfranchised or disenfranchised in the united states
1: yeah um yeah. Okay, sorry. I just didn't want to miss that in the in the larger swirl because you know there there is a, a lot to be talked about in terms of how the courts were approached, and in terms of how that maps on to some of the stuff that happened with Tiberius Gracchus once the Lex Agraria was introduced in the assembly. Um, you know, because Marcus Octavius exercised you know at the behest of a certain faction in the Senate, exercised a veto um, that he did not lift even though it was a popular bill which was not how things were done before that Uh, in response Tiberius Gracchus called a vote on deposing a sitting consul from office namely Marcus Octavius um, and that passed uh, which once again had never happened before Um, after that the gloves were off and the Senate refused to, uh, to, do, to actually like do the logistical work necessary to fund the bill that had just been passed in the Assembly, um, which, again, was a little bit against the grain. So Gracchus himself, as tribune, seized a bequest from a foreign government. Basically, the, the king of Pergamum didn't like any of his possible heirs, mm-hmm. Saw, foresaw a big um, you know, uh, succession crisis in his own country, so he just decided to leave the country, the kingdom of Pergamum, and all of its treasury to the Roman people. Pretty cool. Um, so Gracchus finds out about yeah, this crazy. and seizes that bequest before it gets to Rome and basically bars the treasury of the Roman Republic in addition to that and says, I'm going to use this bequest to fund my land reforms you all can go sit on it, um, in the words of Happy Days. And then he was like, and oh, by the way, to make sure this gets done right, I'm running for another term as Tribune. And that was like before that, nobody had ever run for a second term as Tribune. Um, so the end of this sad story is that you know people were shouting about King Tiberius um, at the end, or the Senate at least was, and eventually he was killed in a in a violent um, you know in a mob in the Forum. Um, and that was that. So um, I think that while we have yet to devolve into political murder, um, you know, a lot of the sort of escalating rhetoric around executive appointments, both to the judicial branch and just to fill executive agency seats, um, just like you were describing, has sort of engaged in that tit for tat escalation of um, of like, well we're not going to do this thing that everybody's always done until now. And then we're not going to do this other thing that's even a little bit more extreme. And so I think that that, that, I mean, there are valid comparisons to be made there. Are there any points that you see of contrast that we should draw? I mean, other than the obvious, you know, Rome was a society that was 2,000 years before us. There were technological differences, like all that stuff. We can take for granted, right? But do you see any, like, functional differences between how things happened in Rome and and how things seem to be happening in the United States? Is there reason for hope?
0: I do think that, or at least maybe it's a naive hope, that the rule of law in the United States is stronger or... I don't know the tradition of the rule of law in the United States is such that there are certain moves that that someone might try to make which are still truly out of bounds um, but which may not lead to murder (laughs) right Uh, you know if if a if if a governor uh, of a state um, decided he or she was going to run, um, for a, for a term outside of their term limits. I I really, I don't believe that that would be allowed to happen. (laughs) I, I don't think any judge in the country, conservative or liberal at this point would allow that to happen. I also don't, don't think that the only recourse that we have would be to murder the, you know, the governor, the currently sitting governor, um, that being said, in Wisconsin, we have a, a an issue right now where the outgoing governor and his party, which currently or up until recently controlled um, the legislative body, is severely curtailing the power of the of the, you know, incoming um, the incoming governor, which is who is part of the uh, opposite, you know, political party. And so there definitely are some ripples, you know, Um, and uh, is there is there reason for hope? I really I'm not sure um, at this point in, in our history.
1: Let me say this. There are a few differences that I think give me reason for hope now that I've had a chance to think about it for a minute. One, we have a written constitution. That's not something the Romans actually had. Right. right and so we have a document that says this is the way we do things. Um and the Romans had you know common institutional understanding of how we do things um based on their history and a shared sense of that history but they didn't have a written constitution like there was nothing that you know the opponents of Tiberius Gracchus could point to and say you are not in compliance with amendment 3 to article 7 of the Roman constitution. Um, Just from an optical perspective, there's more basis there. But then, in addition, the United States has a government with a mature and functional bureaucracy, which was also something the Romans really didn't have until probably the 300s AD.
0: Yes, so like 400 years from where we are now in the time. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like there was really no. Infrastructure within the Roman system, which is why, for example, corruption was allowed to run so rampant in the provinces. Because you just appointed a guy that you trusted to command an army in a hostile territory and sent him out there to govern the province. And he was really allowed to do whatever he wanted. There were no constitutional constraints. Uh mm-hmm. just, you know. And so, like the fact that we have a mature and functioning bureaucracy that works toward the aim of upholding a written constitution, I think gives us a bulwark against the wholesale toppling of that constitution.
0: Yeah. I think it's important to remember that Rome, I I mean, really is a city state, especially at this point. Um, You know, it's, it's starting to balloon into the, you know, kind of, world-spanning empire that that will have but the politics the politics that happen are happening at the level of a what to us is a small town Um, I mean it's it's huge in comparison to a lot of cities in the world um, in its own time but and I, I don't think you could say that everybody in town knew each other by name but you certainly knew you certainly knew all the politicians by name, you know, Um, which is a really different situation than we have now. I mean, I can't, I can't name every Senator by name, much less the House of Representatives. So um, yeah, these are provincial uh, societies compared to what compared to what we're used to. Um, And, um, and so it makes, you know, it makes everything that happens more personal. I mean, Tiberius is, Tiberius is beaten to death with a leg of a table. That is intensely personal. Um yeah. and I think that um I think that we have a hard time we have a hard time kind of reckoning with with what those kind of national politics look like. Um but um but I certainly think the parallels are there. I I do think though that um there are bureaucrats, you know, un known unnamed bureaucrats within our, within our, uh, the structure of our democracy that really actually, actually believe in America <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, have jobs to keep this thing going, whether, you know, the administration or the, uh, or the Congress is run by Democrats or Republicans. And so I think that's a force for stability and a force for good that Rome could ne- could never conceive of. And which right. ultimately, you know, ultimately is its downfall. Right.
1: Well, and, and in another sign that Roman politics are intensely personal, um, the next person we have to talk about is Tiberius G- Gracchus's brother, Gaius, who took up a tribunate immediately after Tiberius's murder. Yeah. Um, Boy. And he was, you know, where where Tiberius um, had sort of mastered a speaking style where he was um, very collected and serene and relied on the force of his argument. Gaius Gracchus was sort of the opposite. He was a populist. He knew how to work a crowd and really whip them up. Um, and he did it. Um, and he was not he was not interested in, in playing nice anymore. He didn't want to be statesmanly and find the best way to help the people. Like the first version of the Lex Impronia Agraria actually impr- included some pretty solid concessions to people, the wealthy squatters on the land. Um, by the time Gaius takes over, um, the version of the Lex Agraria that actually passed was much less favorable to the Senate because those reforms were pretty explicitly designed to punish his opponents. Like when he'd make a little rule about how magistrates who'd been deposed couldn't hold office again well let's take account real quick of the magistrates who've been deposed marcus octavius that's the whole list so this yeah, was clearly, right. clearly designed directly to stop marcus octavius from ever gaining power again because of the the you know the crap that he had pulled against uh, tiberius gracchus and the lex sempronia agraria and then Gaius Gracchus also did one of those things that we talked about earlier, which is he worked to enhance his own political clientele by passing a bill that would enfranchise, um, meaning allow to vote in Roman elections, um, th- basically the Italian allies, meaning anybody who lived in Italy but not in Rome, which who at the time didn't have voting rights. Um, so Gaius was pretty, um, you know, pretty radical, um, and he was also incredibly popular. Um, and so, and the Senate realized also that they couldn't use necessarily the same tricks that they had used to stop Tiberius, to stop Gaius. So instead they had their puppets support seemingly, they they had their puppets support weaker versions of the same things that Gaius supported, but they found like one fact that they could publicize that made it seem like they were supporting the more aggressive. And eventually the Senate versions of these reforms are what passed, not Gaius Gracchus's. So, for example, Gaius Gracchus had supported—I'm uh, not going to get the specifics on this right because I don't have it in front of me—but basically a land reform bill that divided um, the the land into, I think, four administrative districts, which
0: mm, that sounds right to me,
1: were more flexible um, in some right. ways, and contiguous and large. Um, and then his opponent, the Senate, the Senate's um, sort of puppet introduced a bill that in that divided it into 13 administrative districts which actually weakened it but the number 13 is larger than the number four so they could get out there and say look at us we're doing so much more to distribute this land <laughs> you know 13 <laughs> districts whereas Gaius only has four what's he doing like is he keeping all that land for himself right um and so then at the end of the you know at the end of it all the senate ultimately incited a certain amount of violence um as a pretext to get Gaius and his followers to respond and then killed him in the, in the melee that followed. So more political violence. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think the more important thing to talk about when it comes to Gaius is, um, you know, sort of the, the, the revenge driven politics of, well, of this point in the breakdown of, of civil discourse, you know, these, these policies are in line with what you might call Tiberius's sort of Noble populist aims. Um, but rather than actually being the best thing to accomplish Tiberius's goals, they're the best thing to stymie and punish anybody who had opposed Tiberius, which is an important, if subtle, paradigm shift. Um, do you see any cases in the modern in the modern um, world where we may have made that shift ourselves?
0: I definitely do. I want to circle back just for a second to say that there's such a beautiful uh, resonance (laughs) in our own politics of of a political party just like rolling out a bigger number and saying, "See, it's better. (laughs) It's it's a bigger number, and voters eat that shit up." So, anyway, um, I uh, I just wanted to. I just think it's hilarious that that you know that political move is is, you know, something that I think any society can understand. But um but certainly uh, our politics are are focused on on revenge to, you know, to a certain degree. Um and bef- before I go into this, you know, I want to talk about about the GOP's um efforts to repeal the the Affordable Care Act. Um but I also want to say that, you know, you mentioned that the early versions of the lex agraria that tiberius um tiberius brought to the senate had a lot of concessions for conservative senators and we can see the aca in a way as a uh, political olive branch or a concession toward um toward conservative you know neoliberal ways of of delivering government services to um, to the population or to, to the citizens of the United States, the you know the Affordable Care Act is lifted essentially from what was for a long time known as Romney Care, and that's Mitt Romney, the Republican uh, now senator from Utah, who um, who as governor of Massachusetts um, passed um, health care reform and. Um, and I think we have to see that as a concession to Republican concerns about, you know, overreach of government and spending and things like that. But the Republicans were entirely unwilling to pass it. I don't think it got a single Republican vote. And um, since Trump has been president, <clears throat> uh, they've um, done everything they can to repeal portions of it. Um, I also think that. Trump's efforts to you know, deregulate everything from trade to environmental regulations is an expression and outgrowth of his base, sort of seeking to stick it to people who believe that regulations are important.
1: Um, I mean, it seems like he's, his deregulation push is like pretty explicitly focused on undoing anything that, that his predecessor did in office. Like it's almost, that is a more important goal than good regulation, than a good regime of regulations, whatever that looks like.
0: And I I would even, I mean, I would even say it goes beyond um, sort of the, you know, Obama Trump distinction into any kind of liberal reform at all. I mean, the Environmental Protection Agency was instituted by Nixon, I believe. Um, And, you know, uh, I I guess you can... You can see that as a part of Nixon's uh, liberal streak or, you know, the ability for the government even at that time to reach uh, conclusions which uh, were for the good of the nation, which, you know, maybe we don't have now, Um, although I, you know, it's hard to say that that the Nixonian presidency was a, an example of good government. But there's also voter ID laws. We kind of already talked about efforts to disenfranchise certain um, certain political groups. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, um, we do have down here on our outline um, felon enfranchisement in Florida um, in this recent election. I think a million um, felons were um, given the right to vote.
1: Already, Already being held up in process by the newly elected Republican governor, Ron DeSantis. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't uh, realize that. He's already he's already tied it up in so much red tape that it's not may not ever happen.
0: Yeah. So we have another you know we have another example of of sort of obstinate um, obstinate politics, um, but I do think that you know efforts to enfranchise felons can be seen as a response to you know draconian voter ID laws. Um, can you say more about the ballot initiatives in Michigan and Ohio?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, you were talking a little bit about some, like the the minor the the power grab, we'll call it. I was going to use the word coup d'état, but that's almost certainly not accurate. In Wisconsin, where an outgoing Republican administration significantly hamstrung the incoming Democratic administration, in Michigan and Ohio, similar things happened. But in particular, what I'm concerned about is that ballot initiatives that were contrary to the agenda of the majority passed in the 2018 election in both of those states. And those majorities, after those ballot initiatives passed, took steps to make it harder for ballot initiatives to get on the ballot in the first place and pass in the second place. And so it's It's like, look, we just did these things by circumventing you because it's the will of the people. And they said, mm, "Good point. We're going to make it harder for the people to express their will next time." <laughs> oh
0: my god! Oh Lord, I I had missed that story um, entirely, and um, it is distressing. It's really distressing to hear that. Yep. I mean, what a cynical, totally cynical, nihilistic move. Uh, just a naked power grab. Wow. Yeah. And that, that's Roman. I mean, that shit is Roman. Yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> wow. Well, um, yeah, so we definitely do have, you know, we definitely do have examples, um, examples of both parties, um, uh, pulling these kind of politi- anti-democratic political maneuvers, um, which, uh, which certainly break with, with our own, um, uh, our own mas mayorum, but yeah
1: very Roman. And, um, you know, it's a distressing place to find your politics. And it was a distressing place for Rome to find their politics, but the Gracchi brothers were not the end of the line. And so next time, uh, we're going to take this, this conversation further and we're going to see what happened with the rise of two very powerful rivals in Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sulla. So join us next time when we talk about the Marian Army, the Sullen Constitution, and why you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. Here on Doomed to Repeat It.